Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In this episode of West Cork, you'll meet a man named Martin Graham, who recounts a highly disputed version of events related to the Ian Bailey investigation. While Graham has stuck to his story over the years and in court, the Guardie have wholeheartedly denied his alleged version of events. As with much in this story, it's hard to know for sure where the truth lies. Evidence to support Graham's claims is dealt with in a later episode. This episode includes a retelling of counter-allegations which emerged in the wake of the Guardie's investigation into Ian Bailey. It is not an endorsement of Graham's version of events. Soon after Ian and Jules were released from custody, back in spring of 97, the guards put up a wiretap, by mistake, on themselves. The sound quality is bad, and the line regularly drops out. But the remarkable thing is, the detectives you can hear on the calls don't know they're being recorded. No, 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 no. But then we had the transmit, so I suppose we can't have a There was a three-year national investigation into how and why these recordings were made. And here's what we know. A directive had gone out from top Garda brass to start recording phone lines at Garda stations across the country. Seemingly, the idea was to record the reception line, the line the public called into. The calls we're listening to are not calls to the reception line because the officer in charge of setting up the recording at West Cork Garda headquarters went completely overboard and recorded a whole bunch of lines, including the line to the incident room for the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder investigation. The tapes were forgotten about, and they were only discovered 15 years later in a storeroom after surviving a flood at Bandon Garda station. They became known as the Bandon tapes. Uh, the new fella, he says, I know I'm Dwyer, he says, I'm OK. <laughs> These are conversations you imagine detectives everywhere have when they think they're speaking privately. They joke and gossip about work, talk about the weather. And then every so often there's a conversation that, if you were a detective listening to a wiretap, you might log as personal. I've gone through every statement I'm going to because I'm looking for treads at this stage. I have treads and I'm trying to make a fucking jumper. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. He's talking here about trying to build a case against Ian. He's saying, all I have are these threads, and I'm trying to knit together a jumper, like a sweater. And over the next few months, looking for new threads for this jumper, to get a case against Ian that would stick, the guards went to increasingly absurd lengths. A lawyer for Ian once said that the way the guards ran their investigation back then all but turned West Cork into East Berlin, a paranoid state with eavesdropping, neighbours informing on neighbours. Hello. Hello, Lydia. Well, I think 
But in East Berlin, the Stasi pursued their targets with terrifying competence and ruthless precision. By contrast, the West Court guards seemed to all be flying by the seats of their pants. And before the summer was out, they turned the hunt for Sophie's killer into a complete fiasco. This is West Cork. I'm Jennifer Ford. I'm Sam Bungie, and this is episode eight. The game is on. Back on the night Ian was released following his arrest, he had to make a snap decision about where to sleep. I was told, one, that Jules didn't want to see me because somehow she reluctantly accepted I had something to do with the crime. Two, that the studio house was a crime scene and I couldn't return there, and that there was a lynching mob waiting for me in, in, uh, in Skull. Ian asked to be driven to a house where he knew he could lay low for a few days a large farmhouse tucked away on a hillside a few towns away. The owner there had a kind of open-door policy, people coming and going, friends of friends crashing for a few nights. Ian had stayed there once before, after a fight with Jules. Among the people there that night was someone who'd come to play a major role in the investigation, a man named Martin Graham. Ian didn't take much notice of Martin, but Martin remembers when Ian arrived. And he just came in like a whirlwind, really, and really concerned about his own situation. The persona was really electric. It was like you wouldn't want to touch it. The next morning, Martin says Ian was constantly on the phone, trying to get through to his partner Jules and ringing journalists, commenting on all the news coverage of his arrest. Once Ian left, two detectives showed up at the house on the hillside. They wanted to talk to people there about how Ian had been acting during his stay. No one at the house wanted to talk to them that day, but they left their card and Martin gave them a call. These two detectives would change the course of the rest of Martin Graham's life. Detective guarders Liam Leahy and Jim Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald and Leahy were freaking idiots. Both detectives are long since retired and neither wanted to speak to us for this story. Detective Leahy said he wouldn't comment on an open case. And Detective Fitzgerald said when it came to the press, he preferred to maintain a dignified silence. But Fitzgerald did testify in court about the case, and he had a lot to say about Martin Graham. I've never met a... It's worse than Laurel and Hardy. If there was another one, there'd be the three frickin' Stooges. It's tricky to figure out where Martin Graham is coming from exactly. To start with, he's ex-army... He says he once worked in counterintelligence, but he ditched the military. And nowadays he has a long goatee, dip-dyed baby blue. He told us he doesn't wash, he just jumps in the sea. He pitched up in West Cork on a salvaged bicycle, having cycled from an environmental protest camp in the south of England in the mid-90s. His real name isn't Martin, it's Stephen. Well, they call me Martin of the Kennet. That's, it's, it's my pagan name. And he says things like... I live for the day. Some days I've got 20 bucks, some days I've got nothing. You look at my bank account, it says zero. 
Do you have a bank account? No. <laughs> so it says zero. <laughs> so maybe Detectives Fitzgerald and Leahy thought Martin seemed to have the kind of free time and carefree live-in-the-moment attitude that they could really use. Martin says they pitched him a plan. It's the silliest thing anybody's ever asked me to do. He says the idea was for him to turn up at Ian's house, try to be Ian's friend, and just see what he could get out of him. I'm not even familiar with the guy, but I just, I just thought, it. Is that what you want me to do? They stuck 20 bucks in my back pocket or something like that, you know, and so off I went. So he just came round, he walked up your drive. He just came down the drive. Ian says straight away something didn't feel right. When five weeks after his arrest, St. Patrick's Day in 1997, Martin Graham showed up, unannounced, at the Prairie Cottage. The Prairie is isolated, there's no public transport, and Martin was on foot. And I saw him, and I remember immediately thinking, this guy is a spy. Ian sent him packing. Martin trekked back to the meeting spot. Fitzgerald and Leahy had no idea how long he'd be, so they'd arranged to circle back to the spot every hour on the hour. Martin hopped in the car and gave the detectives his impression of Ian. He was a guy who was highly stressed and needed to chill out. And Jim Fitzgerald says, what do you mean, chill out? I said, well, he needs to get a spliff in his mouth or something like that, have a big bloody joint and go... <sighs> and unload, you know, just get it out of himself. And, uh, and they said, can you get some? And I went, no, I can't get none. Of course I'm going to say that to them. <laughs> Uh, and they turned, uh, and they, he turned around in in his car seat in the front, and he said, "Well, what if we could get you some cannabis?" And I went, "Yeah, yeah, that might work." Later in court, Detective Fitzgerald would insist that he had no memory of this cannabis conversation, but Martin said the idea was to get Ian Stone to see if he'd talk. Only there was a fly in the ointment. A Martin Graham-shaped fly. I worked in the north for years in, in Northern Ireland as a British soldier, so um, I learned to be a little bit sneaky. And Martin saw an opportunity. But I was always being a person. I didn't have no employment. I had no money. I'm going to use this situation. Of course I am. Take them for everything they freaking got. When it gets hot, get out. Over a period of months, Martin met regularly with detectives Leahy and Fitzgerald. He showed us where he'd go to meet them, at a wayside out of town next to a Catholic shrine of the Virgin Mary. They'd drive around, and as Detective Fitzgerald would explain in court, he and his partner would help Martin out. He says they didn't give him hash, but they gave him clothes, cigarettes, and some money for expenses. 20 pounds here and there. But what detectives Leahy and Fitzgerald didn't know, at least not at first, was that Martin had turned double agent. But the truth is, they were taking cannabis out of evidence to give to members of the public in order to gain favour to manipulate a case. They were manipulating the situation, so I have no alternative but, but, but to counter-manipulate. I've got to. A couple of weeks after Martin's first visit to Ian, the detectives drove him back out to the prairie ironing out a new cover story. That Martin would tell Ian he had a job on a fishing trawler heading out of Skull Harbour. It didn't leave town for a few days, so he needed a place to crash. 
Martin says this time he was bringing a sweetener, courtesy of Angada Shiakona. A seven ounce block of high quality Lebanese flat press hashish. Only Martin didn't stick to the script. I stood on the doorstep of Ian Bailey's place. I showed him what they gave me and I said, you're being fitted up, pal. Ian took the news in his stride. Remember, he'd already sniffed Martin out as a spy. What the guards were about to find out is this kind of skullduggery was right up Ian's alley. You know, I'm, I, I was, uh, to some degree, still am an operator. And on the spot, Ian came up with a little insurance plan. Yes, let's turn the tables. It's something that you might do. Not an ordinary person might do, but somebody who's, say, should be say an investigative journalist might do. Ian invited Martin in, sat him down and recorded an interview with him coming clean. Um, Martin, can you tell me how you first uh, became aware of, uh, of, or met Ian Bailey? Uh, first met Ian Bailey. This is the tape. Ian was making it as an official record, perhaps as potential evidence for some big confrontation with the guards down the line, which might explain why he refers to himself in the third person throughout. And... Um... Also, I believe that you were offered a, a large, substantial sum of money if you were able to tell them what they wanted to hear, e.g. that uh, Ian Bailey uh, um, was the, the murderer. Yeah, uh, cash would not be a problem. And we could be talking sums of £5,000 if, if I could make a statement stating that Ian Bailey had, had committed, had owned up to me to committing the murder of Sophie Plandia. Um, Thank you. That evening, Ian and Martin went into Skull and spent the money the detectives had given him on a nice bottle of rum and drank it together. Martin crashed overnight at the Prairie Cottage and the next day went back to work with Detectives Leahy and Fitzgerald. Detective Fitzgerald says this is when he first twigged something might be up. You can imagine him in the front seat, trying to stay composed while beginning to wonder whether he's being played. In court, Detective Fitzgerald said that day Martin handed him a sticky label from a bottle of prescription pills. It had Ian's name printed on it. Martin told him he'd swiped it from the prairie cottage. Detective Fitzgerald says the prescription was for some innocuous medical condition. It was of no use at all, and he told Martin so. But he says Martin replied, you know what use you can put it to. Fitzgerald took that to mean Martin was suggesting they use the label to implicate Ian by planting it at the crime scene. And maybe it's all a bit convoluted, but it speaks to the layers of paranoia on all sides of this. The Fitzgerald's first thought was it's a trap. A trap being laid by Ian Bailey. As in he suspected, Ian was trying to give the guards something of his in the hope that they would try to plant it at Sophie's house and that he'd put a wire on Martin so he'd have proof of the whole plan. In court, Detective Fitzgerald explained his fear. If the conversation was on tape, handed the prescription, prescription found, Mr. Bailey then would have us trapped. The barrister in court responded, it seems an extraordinary move in the game of chess. Back in the car, Fitzgerald had an idea. He decided to flip the script on Martin and start taping their conversations himself. This is a few weeks later, and Detective Fitzgerald has had a recording device installed in the car. The quality of the tape is poor, but in the conversation, Martin seems to be giving the guards some of what they were looking for. 
He's telling them that Ian seemed paranoid lately, that he gets moody on whiskey, tidbits he hoped would be enough to keep the ruse going. In the tape, Detective Fitzgerald says, Yeah, but you are most helpful, Martin. I must say, you know, that it's a case of trying to find ways and means of establishing the truth. Every time I look at those photographs of that post-mortem, you know, and when you see a head being battered to the extent that it was, it motivates us to try and find the truth, you know. Of course, Detective Fitzgerald knew whatever he said was going down on tape, for the record. He explained in court that he wanted to cover himself at these recordings, in case Martin was collaborating with Ian to try to compromise us in some perverse way. But in reality, at this point, Martin hadn't been in contact with Ian for weeks. Martin had to hope he'd convinced Ian they were on the same side and trust him not to blow his cover. There's so much um, kind of double bluffing going on in this story. I was treble bluffing in places. You see how hard that bloody is? <laughs> it was a lot to juggle. This is what, what I say about running with the hare and the hounds. You know, he's telling them one thing. I mean, he's telling me another thing. Meanwhile, the guards were becoming worried about Ian, about just who they were up against. On those recordings that were made at Bandon Station, you can hear the guards call Ian a cunning bastard and say he's playing some game at the minute. And you put, he put the fist up in the pub the other day, I forgot to say this. Word got back to the guards that Ian had been in the pub one evening. Seen a jar and he turned up at the local pub. He doesn't turn up too often. Declaring he planned to take the pensions off a couple of guards. But he put the fist up in the air. I'll take the pension, he says, off a couple of guards, yes. As in, he'd get them fired. Stories like this seem to confirm the guards' worst fears about their suspect, that he was intent on outsmarting them. He's been out there and talking to the witnesses. He's got to. Yeah. He's gone around to everyone ahead of us now. We'll see that to hear where we're going at all. Huh? He is. They're talking about Ian going around talking to their witnesses. He's, he's, he's gone around chasing around everywhere. Witnesses like Rick and Caroline Lefwick. Back on the day Sophie's body was discovered, on December 23rd, Ian had called the Lefwicks to cancel an appointment he had with them that day. Sometime in May, the guards paid the Lefwicks a visit to ask them about that phone call. The very day after the guards' visit, Ian showed up, which was weird because the Lefwicks hadn't heard from him in five months. Ian wanted to know what the guards had been asking about him. When the Lefwicks told them they'd been asking about that December 23rd phone call, Ian wanted to know how they knew he'd rung them in the first place. And the Lefwicks say Ian wondered aloud whether the guards had tapped his phone. The Lefwicks fed all this back to the guards, and the guards seemed to think that was pretty funny. For them to catch Ian's call to the Lefwicks on December 23rd, they'd have had to tap Ian's phone before the murder. And they're tickled by the very idea of phone tapping an innocent, pre-murder West Cork. As Detective Fitzgerald says, you'd have to be a clairvoyant. The reality was more low-tech. The guards were looking to the Skull phone records to bolster their case against Ian, but they weren't having much luck. The phone system presented a huge headache. At the time, the Westcourt network was in flux, with some areas on a modern digital system and more remote areas still on an old analogue network, meaning they couldn't ID incoming or outgoing calls. All right. That's the thing, you see. Because going from, from a, an undigital area into a digital area. Sophie's house was on the old network. So was Ian's. 
but this is going from a digital area. The guards were especially keen to establish who Ian spoke to by phone the day Sophie's body was discovered, December 23rd. They knew that at 1.40pm, Ian got a call from the journalist Eddie Cassidy. That's the call where Ian said he first learned about a body. The guards were able to verify the time of Eddie's call because he used a mobile phone. But they learned that Ian was on the phone a lot that day, speaking to a lot of people about the murder. Over a period of months, the guards caught up with these people, working on a theory that Ian knew too much too soon. And several people gave statements to support that idea. Journalists said Ian called with details about the victim, that she was French and good-looking, back before he'd even been to the crime scene, when Ian says he didn't even know who the victim was. And Rick and Caroline Lefwick, the couple Ian had called that day to cancel their appointment, they told the guards that Ian had told them he wouldn't be able to make it as he was reporting on a murder. But, they said, Ian called around noon, which was 90 minutes before the Eddie Cassidy call. Caroline Lefwick's statement to the guards went like this. Ian rang me and he was excited. He said, there's been a murder at Tourmall. I asked him who it was, as I knew a few people in the area. He said it was a French woman, someone on holiday. As I've said, he was very excited as he was going to cover the story. So that's information that you shouldn't have known at 11 And I didn't know at that time, and that call wasn't made at that time. That call was made sometime subsequent to me returning from the scene. Ian says everyone has their timings wrong. And because of the old phone system, there was no way to verify the times of any of these calls. There was only people's recollections. And the guards had taken a long time to get around to these witnesses. They didn't take a statement from the Lefwicks until five months after the murder. In that time, Ian's name had been plastered all over the papers as the prime suspect. I mean, I think she's maybe, whether she's made a mistake with the Times as a result of a genuine accident or whether she's made um, a mistake with the Times because she's been persuaded to, I don't know. Ian says people were crossing the street to avoid him. He was hearing clicks on his phone line. And the guards had sent a spy up his driveway. They knew what was being done to me. And I probably was... Um, uh, I, I felt I was being subjected to a psychological operation, a psyops operation, whereby I'd been targeted. My name had gone out there. I'd had clothes and possessions taken. And this was part of an orchestrated campaign. So, but you must have been in feeling pretty paranoid at that stage? Uh, well, I, yes, I think uh, paranoid, uh, paranoid the right expression. Well, justified par- paranoia, perhaps. Like, it's not paranoia if they're really after you? Absolutely. Then in June 1997, one night in a Skull pub, a woman approached Ian, saying she wanted to talk. I didn't know this lady at all. It was Marie Farrell. Ian says Marie suggested they speak somewhere less crowded, and they made a plan to meet the next morning at her shop. Marie ran a clothes shop in Skull with an ice cream parlor tacked onto it. Ian was interested, but wary. And I am highly, I mean, I would be highly, I can remember, and I still am to some degree, highly suspicious of um, motives. I'm aware of something is going on, and that Maria Farrell somehow comes into this, this, um, strange um, matrix of facts. 
Just to back up, Marie's testimony was central to the guards' case. She'd given them statements saying that the man in the long black coat she'd seen three times the weekend of the murder was Ian. Crucially, that she'd driven past him the night of the murder on the coast road by Kilfada Bridge, close to the crime scene, when Ian said he was at home. But Marie hadn't been totally forthcoming with the guards. She was married. On the night of the murder, she was out driving with another man, and she wasn't saying who. There's awful problems as well, didn't you see him? Between you and me and the wall, which uh, the, the, the collaboration of a sighting kiss on the bridge, yeah. This is Detective Fitzgerald speaking. He's making the point that the guy Marie was in the car with might help corroborate her sighting. But he's having awful problems, he says. The issue was, Marie wanted to keep the late-night drive a secret from her husband. She said the man she was out with had a family to protect too. She has made a statement on the condition that he will never be interviewed because she doesn't want to break his home up. Marie was cooperating with the guards only up to a point, but she was their only material witness. So Detective Fitzgerald was navigating a sensitive situation carefully. We're going to come back to Marie later, but it's hard to really be sure what motivated her to approach Ian in the pub that evening. What we can say is that after the meeting, she called Detective Fitzgerald, because the next morning, when Ian called by the shop as arranged, the guards were staking the place out. But Ian didn't stay. He stuck his head in the door, told Marie he had something to take care of, and would be back. But then the guards watched as Ian seemed to be just idling around town, eyeing up Marie's shop. He more or less told Marie uh, last night he, that he called. He lived up to that with this stranger. He stopped at the shop door. He says, fuck all to do. He's politicking around the town. He says, I'll do And he wouldn't come up to the shop. Detective Fitzgerald figured Ian suspected Marie had tipped off the guards and he was waiting to see if they showed up. In other words, Ian was staking out the stakeout. They're saying Ian would know the detectives' cars by now and would be looking out for them. And so they hatched another plot for when Ian returned to Marie's shop. In the hope Ian would say something incriminating to Marie, Fitzgerald arranged to put a wire in the shop. Ian returned that Saturday. According to Marie's statement, when he appeared in her doorway, she could see wires hanging loose under his shirt. Then he whipped open his jacket to reveal a tape recorder strapped to his belt and told Marie, I'm all wired up. He told us that for an investigative journalist, the recording device was de rigueur. Standard practice. Except that you're not, you weren't going to write an article about it. Um, no, but if uh, there was any information that was, I was, she was going to tell me that was going to be of use or interest, it obviously it, you know, it would be better to have it backed up. Ian suspected the other side might have had the same idea. The first question I asked her when I went in was, is, is, is the place bugged? I, I had it in the back of my mind that perhaps I was walking into a trap. So he put some money in the ice cream parlour jukebox and cranked it up to full volume to mask their conversation. Um, where'd you get the jukebox idea? I feel like I've seen that. Oh, well, I, I think I, got, I saw that once in the James Bond movie, I think it was. when. Um, yeah, 
But West Cork's 007 needn't have bothered, because in spite of the multiple devices to hand that day, nothing was recorded. Ian says he asked Marie for permission to record, and she refused. For her part, Marie had panicked when she saw Ian walk through the door and couldn't get the recorder plugged in. So what was said in the ice cream parlour that day remains a mystery. Ian says the meeting was short and uneventful. He smoked some cigarettes, had some ice cream. I don't think we had. We, d- we really didn't finish up having a substantial conversation. He says Marie didn't seem bothered by anything during the meeting. Um, I wasn't aware of any distress or unnerving particularly, but then again, I didn't know Maria Farrell well. Marie had a very different story. Because when he was in the shop, I really did think, in the few minutes I was on my own with him, I did think he was going to kill me. Years later, when Marie first went public about her involvement with the case, she'd go on the radio to give an account of that day in the shop. What did he say to you? The first thing he said was, um, you will scratch my back and I will scratch yours. There are things I know about you. And he said to me, um, I'm an investigative journalist and it's my job to check you out. And he said, on Monday, you will ring my solicitor and you will tell him that you made false statements about me. Um, He read some diary entries or what appeared to be diary entries to you. And what was the tenor of those diary entries? Well, he opened the diary and... um, there were, he started reading about, you know, um, his own sort of sexual prowess, I suppose, you know, and he was a stud and he was so sought after by women and he had filled so many barrels of sperm over his lifetime, and, which was sort of, it was at the time, you know, when you think of it now, you think that's disgusting, but at the time it was just so frightening. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Ian denies all of that. But he does admit to telling Marie to stop telling lies about him and to call his lawyer. That detective back on one of the Bandon tapes had talked about knitting together this sweater of a case. Ian was trying to unravel it, pulling at all the threads. The guards saw Ian trying to bring their witness, Marie Farrell, over to his side, going around to people who'd given them statements, doorstepping locals after the guards had visited, asking questions about their questions. They must have wondered, what was motivating Ian? Was he desperate, convinced the guards were out to get him and had no one to turn to? Was part of him enjoying all this, getting caught up in the game? They already suspected Ian had got to their mole, Martin Graham. And then one day in June 1997, Ian accidentally confirmed their suspicions. I've been a little bit indiscreet, I think. Ian tried to bring his neighbours, the Jacksons, the ones who talked about the bonfire, into one of his plans. Because I'd spoken to neighbours who were friends at the time and I told them what was going on. He told them all about Martin Graham. I don't think any names were mentioned. He told them that the guards had been paying Martin for information about Ian. Ian suggested to the Jacksons that they call the guards to say they have some information about Ian and see how much the guards offered them for it. Suffice to say, the Jacksons didn't go along with Ian's plan. Instead, they told the guards about it. I think word got back to them because I know that the people I was speaking to, the guards were also speaking to. Um, So that was was perhaps a lapse of security. Ian called it a lapse of security on his part. And it left Martin exposed. And what were you feeling at that point? Mm, Buggered. (laughs) Up the creek without a paddle at that point. 
I couldn't see where it could go any further. I had to stop it. And the best way to stop it is to report it. And so I, I reported it. Martin contacted a newspaper, The Sunday World. Billy McGill remembers getting the assignment. You need to go and see a guy who's got a story and it's about being paid as a police informer and he's looking for a note. He wants an airline ticket and he wants cash and we're to go down and meet him. We've met Billy before. He's the photographer who came to suss out Ian before his arrest and outran the plainclothes detectives in his fast car. So another part-time special agent, just what the situation called for. Billy sped down to meet Martin, and Martin explained the situation to Billy. He had a meeting set up for later that day with detectives, and they would be bringing him drugs. He wanted the journalist to document the handover. Billy needed to make sure Martin was clean when he went to meet the guards, that he wasn't already carrying drugs. Billy checked Martin over, and then he asked him to step out the car and gave him a second, more thorough search. He says it's the second search that really counts. And that's the one when you really, really get to it. That's when you slip your hand inside the underpants. That's when you take the shoes off and you see the socks. I took no pleasure in putting my hand inside the underpants, but there was no place I didn't look. I'm convinced he had nothing concealed on his body whatsoever in any place. Billy and his partner gave Martin a tape recorder so he could tape his conversation with the guards. It all looked like it was going to plan. He walked back to our car. I photographed him holding up what he received from the police in the evidence bag, and I knew exactly what the substance was. And um, that's it. Billy McGill snapped a photo. It shows a young, bushy-haired Martin Graham holding up what looks at least passingly like an evidence bag with a big lump of hash inside. Afterwards, Billy says he checked the recording and heard a conversation. The guards apologizing for being late, telling Martin that they'd had to wait for someone minding the storeroom to leave so they could get in. Did you feel like a sense of relief now? You weren't on your own anymore? Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it would be brilliant. I thought, right, that's it. I've got the tape recording. Here's the proof. I'm out of here. The story was shelved. Word got back to Billy that it was because the recording hadn't worked, though he still maintains he heard something on that tape. There was no tape, no story, no photographs published. Now he really had to go. Because as soon as I talked to the journalists, uh, that's it. I'm fucked. What follows is another crazy escapade that the guards have denied, but which Martin says involved being bundled into the back of an unmarked guarder car by two detectives he'd never seen before. He says the guards drove him out into the countryside, one of them pushing his head down between his knees and issuing him death threats. They eventually let him go, but the whole thing spooked Martin so much that he skipped town. He fled to England and went to ground, hiding out in canal boats and in the Norfolk Fens, only re-emerging 18 years later when he felt it was safe. And so, yeah, it screwed up my whole life. I wish I never got involved. They were stupid. The police were bloody stupid. They, they broke all procedure. They fucked it up. Martin says it's like the guards had become obsessed with getting Ian at any cost. So, yeah, yeah, they had their teeth in there and they weren't letting go. It's like a pit bull on a, on, on a rabbit, mate. It's not, it's, you won't take that out of its mouth. And this is how, in the space of a few months, the Sophie Toscan Plantier investigation became a saga of stings, bugs, double agents and drug talk. 
It's like no one quite noticed how far things had strayed. You'd be forgiven for forgetting a simple fact in all this, which is that the guards didn't go specifically looking for Martin Graham. Martin called them. Was he only an opportunist? Or had he been, at one time, a guy who thought he'd seen something and wanted to help? They should have looked at another alternative way of approaching the situation and disregard me as a no-goer. But they didn't. They wanted to push me a little bit further. But I can see why they didn't want to disregard you because you're... It sounds like, you know, you had some, you know, valuable information initially. Well, no, only what everybody else saw. Did other people in the house speak to the cops, you know? Uh, no. No, we, we, we basically just didn't say anything. No one did in front of each other, but they all saw what I saw. I only had the same information as everybody else had. Of, of his, as I say, his demeanour, his, his behaviour. But it sounds like uh, there was something that made you question him or wonder about him. Yeah, I saw an air of madness. There was an air of madness, you know. Uh, it was absolutely, I've seen it before. Uh, I've seen people with madness in their eyes. Uh, and he had that at that time. West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olof. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 